0: Welcome to my balcony, welcome to the sound of dogs in the distance barking in the morning, welcome to the sound of buses and lorries grinding up the road just behind my hotel, Uh, welcome to the the noise of birdsong in the thick woods that surround uh, this balcony where I'm standing, looking out over the the Garda pre-Alps, this this valley that leads up to Trento, and above us uh, the colossal mountain of Monte Bondone where the race is going to finish today. It's sunny, I'm rested, sort of, and let's go again one more week of the Giro d'Italia and an outcome in the race that is far from certain and a voice that is a little bit croaky. So um, yes, yeah, stage 16. We're on our way to work via the wrong way. Um, we, uh, we, we, me and Matt, we drove to the top of the climb, only to find out that the, um, the TV compound is kind of at the bottom of the climb. So we've left a cafe where we were sitting and uh, drinking a, our second cappuccino of the day uh, and enjoying the sunshine at the top of the climb. And now we're rattling down the climb again. Um, so it's, all, it's one of those days where it's all a bit confusing. Also. We're in the sort of fug of confusion that is stage 16. And uh, Matt's developed a uh, bit of a cough overnight, which is interesting. Spent a lot of yesterday sneezing, actually, often in groups of three. It was, um, as it often happens with sneezing, you go, sneeze, sorry, and then you apologize to everyone in the car, sneeze apologize again and then sneeze just as a little so a triptych of sneezing repeatedly yeah. throughout what was really quite a long transfer yesterday yeah.
1: I mean I, I mean for what it's worth it broke the journey up a little bit because yeah, you know you guys said we were really nice bless you each time um, I apologize and uh, bless you but yeah um, horrible journey yesterday wasn't it oh, mate it was awful wasn't it um, there was two crashes uh, on the, on the various big motorways around Brescia um, I think we had two hours and fifteen um uh, Eta normalmente. That is the.
0: That means normal, normally. Yeah, um, but Matt's sort of almost completely Italian by now. Yeah. On Pelletotti next to me, so um, do just bear with him as he just he just gets confused because he's thinking and dreaming in Italian there. Yeah, so.
1: and um, it's uh, yeah. Sometimes I forget the English words for things, so just yeah. I, I'm not trying to be. Yeah, it's just yeah. But um, I, I, we had a little but when we got to the hotel, what a lovely hotel. Perched on this big sweeping hairpin bend at the, on the lower slopes um, of, the, of the mountain where the race finishes, Monte Bondone. Um, the hotel was beautiful, the food was beautiful, but I, um, we all did various things. Our colleagues Massey and Jess went for a sauna and a spa. I buzzed out on my bike up the hill. It took me an hour, breathtaking views. I podded with, with Pete and David. You podded with Pete and Dave. So although it was a late arrival, it was actually a really quite pleasant afternoon, wasn't it? Um, it I mean, really, really quite lovely. Um, and I'll be honest with you, although I loved the race, it had the feeling of like a little bit of a tiny little mini holiday, like a mini weekend break. And we didn't really want to leave the hotel. We sat and had a lovely, an extraordinarily lovely cup of coffee, sat out on the decking, um, and we wanted to stay there, didn't we? We just wanted to stay there. You're right, you're right. Um, but, yeah, so
0: mid this extended transfer that we had on our rest day yesterday that turned into a four-hour drive in the traffic jam, um, we had a good playlist going of 90s classics um, <coughs> that was yours, I think, your playlist. But also then we plugged Massey's phone in and he had a similar sort of era, I think. Yes. But it dipped back into the 80s repeatedly. And at one point it went a bit deutsch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when 99 Luftballons came on. And I, you know, everyone knows that song, don't they? But the German version, Nina Hagen and all that, but I didn't know what the, um, the the verses were, so I looked it up on Google Lyrics and sang along for a little bit. Um, is, is you going to give us a. Can you remember? Just, just the chorus in German? I don't much just, of it. Well, I, I, the, the the fourth verse, as far as I'm I could look it up again, but I'm not sure I can be bothered. But the, the fourth verse begins 99, Kriegminister. Uh, Krieg, and then it goes something like um, something about uh, Streichhölzer und Benzinkanister, and that means um, 99 ministers of war with their matches and their uh, canisters
1: of petrol. It's pretty In other words, about uh, to uh, uh, you know incinerate the world. Yeah, that's quite brutal isn't it, so it, it I, when I was a kid listening to it I just thought I was just like just, it's all about balloons yeah Not, you know, red balloons no, it's actually about nuclear Armageddon yeah, yeah just to yeah. return to one of your favourite subjects I was trying to kind of forget the Cold War years you know, the, the early 80s when I was a child but now you, you've given me a stark reminder <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of, um, of my letter to Gorbachev yeah. that might be my, my memoirs if I do ever write any just letters to Gorbachev letters to Gorbachev yeah how I brokered world peace yeah. and became a world feed commentator oh, oh no. So, we, we, this, this, the tranquility this morning, double tranquility. We talked about how beautiful our hotel was. We went up to the Hotel Montana, where we sat with our friend Davide, having a cup of coffee, doing our prep, and he just said, "Oh, guys," and then just told us. And at least, at least, we've been really good at get, getting, leaving a little bit earlier than planned. So we've always had an extra bit of a buffer. And if we hadn't have had a buffer today, we could have quite, we could have missed. A, 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 a slot. Can you imagine that? The whole world waiting for the world feed to start. Yeah.
0: Um. The titles roll. That sweeping sort of like classical, you know, just, uh, uh, a theme tune that uh, heralds the advent of each televised stage. What,
1: just absolute top. Sorry. Sorry. Someone, Sorry. Sorry.
0: was nearly a head to head, head on c- c- uh, collision there. But he overtook the whole... on the approach to a hairpin. Yeah, he's Italian. It's fine. <sighs> um. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine that. Just not like you know the the. the the race starts, and we're not there to
1: guide guide the viewer through the. Um, you know. I bet a lot of the viewers, uh, even the ones that uh, are really into cycling, wouldn't have a clue what's going on. Not the faintest idea. No,
0: they'd be bereft for the 6.5-kilometre neutralised rollout yeah. that we have to commentate on. That's after talking for about 15 minutes, and then we see the neutralized running. We have to commentate on that before the flag drops at the start of a 203-kilometer stage with 5,200
1: meters of climbing. It's a big old day. It's chunky <laughs> day, and the earliest start we've had. Yeah, it is the earliest start, but the only <sighs> I think it does break it up, not break it up, but they it's a very densely packed climb. So the first 76 kilometers are pan flat along the- Garda. Yeah, west shores of, of Lake Garda. Pan flat, and then they hit the climb. So that 5,000 meters of elevation plus is all within the last 126 k's. So it's brutal. It really is going to be. It's going to be all over the shop.
0: They roll into what's called the um, the Garda Pre Alps. That's where we are. That's what this mountain range is called. So they're kind of like they're not full on Alps, are they? They're just kind of the finish line today. is 1,600 meters, something like that. Yes. Um, I mean, they're big
1: enough, and my word. Yeah, it's bigger siblings you can see in the distance, can't you?
0: Well, actually, we're at the junction with the Alps and the Dolomites here, aren't we? Very cl- you know, clearly. And when you get up to altitude at the top of Mon- Monte Bondone, look across, you can see, I think you described
1: them yesterday as dinosaurs, s- s- The back of a stegosaurus, it's yeah. it's, it's it's rugged, jagged, incredible. Um, again, almost otherworldly, really. So I'm just doing a few little overtakes on this beautifully sweeping descent. Um...
0: But it's it's an intri- it's a fascinating part of it's a fascinating part of Italy, isn't it? Because <clears throat> it was only annexed uh, to the the Kingdom of Italy in 1919, the end of the First World War, uh, when they took control of this part of Italy from um, from uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, in whose hands, in the Habsburg family, it had been for centuries, <clears throat> save for a brief period. Um, in the early 19th century when uh, under a very complicated treaty whose terms I can't quite understand because it wasn't actually fought over but it was handed over control of of um, this region to Napoleon um, and absorbed into a French rule that was heavily resisted actually here um, until Napoleon's defeat in 1814 um, and then it returns to Habsburg control uh, and that ended with Austro-Hungary's defeats in uh, 19, 1918, at which point it became Italian. Um, is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, and uh, <clears throat> but but it's it's heavily, you know, li- especially a little bit further up, about 40 kilometres up, when you get to Bolzano, it's German-speaking, um, and. Uh, uh, yeah and the one little note because it featured at a dinner at our dinner table yesterday is there's a there's a very niche grape variety that has grown up here um, Lagrein, uh, which is uh, I once discovered it a few years ago when I came on a, here on holiday to Bolzano in the winter and it's because I kind of associate mountain red wine with being quite thin like Pinot Noir sort of yep. you know quality and certainly Austrian red wine and most German red wines I've ever had um have that sort of quality to them, uh, but Lagrein is, is really quite rich. And I think, well, just looked up the tasting notes, didn't she last night? It's kind of black curranty and you know, chocolatey, chocolatey and all that sort of thing. Um, and I think it's, I think it's excellent. And, but it's really quite rare. And it, it's drunk in this region, but doesn't export across the world greatly. I remember trying to find a bottle of Lagrein in um, in uh, London and completely failing. So I uh,
1: think things like that, uh, you know, we're both ever so slightly entrepreneurial. I'm just, think, I'm just wondering if we just um, we just fill that hole in the market and we become the importers because we, we went to uh, one of our little favourite conads that we we jokingly call a gonad, a little um, supermarket at the bottom of the hill, um, half a kilometre from our hotel to fill up with nonsense nuts, etc. I managed to buy some banana and apple, um, um Juice boxes, which I'm a big fan of, and I know that Ned loves a um, the pear variety in particular. He's, he's, he's all over it, and actually, he's like, "Ned, stop buying pear pear juice." That's what it's like. But anyway, um, we bought two bottles of that wine, didn't we? Um, yeah. And um, so, but seven nine it's very reasonable, isn't it? Seven ninety nine. So yeah, we picked up one and went,
0: let's get another. Yeah. So we've got two in the car now, uh, which is good. Chances are they won't make it
1: back to London.
0: I, I doubt, doubt it. Very, very much
1: I do. doubt it. And again, it wouldn't be an overly, even if we put a heavy margin on it, if we just imported one bottle. I mean, uh, the overheads alone, I mean, we'd end up at a slight loss, wouldn't we? If we? just, I think we just need to look at it on a bigger scale. To get the paperwork, uh, yeah. um, you know, especially in this post-Brexit world, yeah. it might be, if
0: we're honest, economically unviable and we'd be trading at a loss.
1: Yeah, and I think we've got to be realistic about that from the off-NED. I mean, there's the, there's the romantic element of, how like, we become wine importers as well as world feed commentators, podders, uh, whatever <laughs> we do. Uh, but I think we've just got to be realistic about it, Ned. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Um, good. Uh, and and also, the, the, the other thing is this: Are you feeling a bit carsick? Well, I'm I'm driving and I'm feeling slightly sick. Yeah, I'm, I'm, if it weren't for the fact that I'm doing a podcast, yeah. I would be literally sort of holding my head fun. out of the window, gasping for air, and feeling you know trying to overcome the nausea. But the podcast is somehow making allowing me to focus on um, not being sick, which is good. Yeah. Um. um the other thing that, I, that always comes to mind when I'm in this part of Italy is that and I hate to return once again to war, but the great war that was fought <laughs> in these mountains uh, between Italy and uh, Austria and Germany, um, uh, which saw the military service of both Ottavio Botecchia and Ernest Hemingway, whose book, um, <laughs> uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, I am, I've am i nearly finished, but I'm, I'm, I'm reading it so slowly, partly because I'm massively enjoying it. Not that that book, by the way, has anything to do with... Um, this war. This was uh, in his book about uh, the the war in Italy was called A Farewell to Arms, which I thoroughly recommend as well. In fact, For Whom the Bell Tolls is is about. Um, Ned, can I? Yeah, I'm just rambling. sorry, mate. can I, I'm just I'm just going to no, <laughs> yeah.
1: pull over here. Yeah, because can we put the? Well, I'm just work, following okay. where Jess is. Because this is back to the hotel, and there's nothing down there. All right. Okay. So we need to. I'm just going to I'm just going to calibrate again. Yeah. Sorry, mate.
0: Uh, well, uh, yeah, that all got a bit fraught. We're going the wrong way. But it, it did save um, the podcast from a really <laughs> rambling sentence about Ernest Hemingway that was going absolutely nowhere. It was nice, though, it? it wasn't nice at all. I was, I was losing it. But um, uh, yeah, Hemingway fought in Italy, didn't he? Famously. Um, I wrote about it in A Farewell to Arms. But uh, yeah, but For Whom the Bell Tolls is, a, is amazing. And yesterday I was just sitting outside our hotel in near Bergamo, uh, enjoying the sunshine. And um, I actually found a joke in For Whom the Bell Tolls, that made me laugh out loud, um, which was an aspect of Ernest Hemingway's writing that I had hitherto not understood. He actually, apart from everything else, had a a wicked sense of humour. More of that later. But at the moment, we need to uh, focus on getting to our commentary position, actually starting our broadcast on time, because this has become a little bit fraught. Um, uh, And while we do that, here's Charlie Corterman again, specifically... Uh, responding to David Miller's assertion that he sounded, not only does he have Chris Froome's elbows, but he also sounds like Chris Froome, and David uh, seemed very certain that Charlie Quarterman was had spent some time in South Africa <laughs> and was uh, potentially South African. So I put this to Charlie, and this is his reply.
2: Uh, actually, I'm doing this limited edition recording because uh, Ned sent me a message this morning to respond to uh, to a comment from David that... I have a South African accent. Firstly, thank you, I'm very honoured to be that you know who I am. <laughs> That's lovely. Uh, but no, um, it's more French. I, I used to get told I have a very posh voice, which is probably true, um, like many of my friends. But uh, actually, the more embarrassing one now is that people say I, I occasionally speak with a French accent. I don't actually speak much English these days. It's only by message or on the phone to my friends or family. but. Um, a lot of my friends are uh, French now and obviously my, my girlfriend Louise as well and uh, I actually don't speak much English out loud so when it comes to it I quite often mix the odd French word in there and uh, and then say say kind of strange words in a funny way um, which is a little bit embarrassing but no there's no there's no South African in there um, the only similarity to to Froom is the the uh, the elbows and apparently the lungs also. I, I did a test recently, and uh, there's a certain similarity with the with the lung capacity. But unfortunately, I also also don't have his legs from uh, from a couple of years ago. <laughs> anyway, that that might come, that might come one day. But yeah, lots of work to do today. We'll see uh, see how much I suffer if it's just two hours or the whole stage. <laughs> what a fun uh, fun choice. Out.
0: Well, hello again. It's a rude awakening at the judo today after the comfort of the second rest day. Over 5,000 metres of climbing on the programme today as the race heads north along the shore of Lake Garda before taking on a series of five categorised climbs culminating in the final challenge of Monte Bondone. Whatever happens, it's a huge day today in the battle for overall victory. At the end of the day, Daryl is going to take the win. He'll take the 10 seconds. Garant Thomas finishes in second place for six seconds. A fantastic performance from the white jersey and from Garant Thomas, who'll be in pink at the end of the day. Well, that was some stage, wasn't it? I think we can all agree with that. Um, And uh, lots to reflect on and uh, 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 a Geraint Thomas in a position in the general classification that you wouldn't necessarily have predicted at the beginning of the day of racing that we've just witnessed and Joao Almeida and Primoz Roglic, the way those three riders have reshuffled is intriguing and I think Geraint Thomas and Joao Almeida will take an awful lot of confidence from what they witnessed on that final climb today. Um goes without saying, doesn't it? But there's a massive amount of climbing still in this race. Three <clears throat> big mountain days still to come, all with uphill finishes, including that individual time trial. Oh, day off tomorrow uh, for the general classification, almost certainly. Um, and I can tell you that for a fact because the reason this pod is late today, and I'll explain why it's just me talking as well. The reason why this pod is late today is because I have just driven three and a bit hours, Um, away from off the mountain, down out of the Alps, into Veneto um, and uh, right down to the coast just north of Venice actually where we're staying uh, tonight. I'm shattered um, but I can confirm that tomorrow's route which uh, we followed pretty much the whole way off and on um, is downhill (laughs) and probably with a tailwind and completely featureless in terms of climbs. So it's a definite sprint. Um, now the reason it's just me is that Matt's not feeling very well. Bless him. Uh, he's maybe he's just talked himself into a standstill. Um, but no, the old boy's suffering a little bit um, tonight. So I decided to go easy on him and just uh, and just give him a night off um, uh, from from podding and an evening off. So hopefully <clears throat> with a good night's sleep and uh, bearing in mind we stopped off at a petrol station or I pulled over at a petrol station so he could jump out and get his favourite. Um, brand of Doritos which he sat next to me wasn't saying much on the drive actually but he sat next to me on the drive just scoffing them and and I think after he'd scoffed pretty much the whole pack he saved a little bit for himself tomorrow um, I think he started to feel a bit better and then he had some strawberries he claimed for the vitamin C content um, and then he started banging on about McDonald's every time we passed one so he's definitely seeking out the comfort food end of the uh spectrum of nutritional options in Italy at the moment, um, which can only mean that he's not particularly well. Uh, So let's all wish him a a good recovery because frankly, commentary-wise and in all sorts of podding-wise and everything, there is no plan B at the moment. Uh, It's too short notice for me to possibly get hold of Pete and David. Got to get this pod edited and uploaded. Um, Yeah, so it's just me rambling on in a hotel room all on my own. I did... In that slightly chaotic beginning to this, today's slightly underwhelming uh, podcast, I did refer to a joke in the Hemingway uh, book that I had been reading, which I think I should try and explain. Um, there's a scene towards the end of uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls when, where the, the fascists are, have encircled and completely outnumbered a partisan hideaway where El Sordo is um, hiding out, for those of you who know the book. And um, they are there's a bit of a stalemate while five of the partisans are holding out and they're waiting for um, the bombers to come in and sort of finish the job the job off. But while there's a stalemate, the fascists one by one are shouting obscenities in the direction of the partisans, calling them a red this and a commie that and a, all sorts of strange, uh, uh, strangely translated obscenities from Spanish into English. And there's just one line from uh, from that sequence where. I probably can't find it in the book again, so I'll have to paraphrase it, um, but the commander, the captain, who has... Oh, oh, here oh, wait a minute, here it is. Yeah, here it is. Uh, uh, hold on. Really there. Oh yeah, here we are, here we are. So, the first officer stood there, his head all clear of the rock and with his hand on his pistol butt he cursed and vilified the hilltop nothing happened then he stepped clear of the boulder and stood there looking up the hill fire cowards if you are alive he shouted fire on a uh, fire on one who has no fear of any red that ever came out of the belly of the great whore that was and then he says this last was quite a long sentence to shout and the officer's face was red and congested as he finished don't know why that amused me. It just did. Uh, that Anyway, that would explain that back, back reference, that point about um, Hemingway being funny. Obviously, that fell flat, didn't it? It's not the best bit of the podcast and not the best bit of the podcast series. Um, I hope all of you managed to watch today's stage or at least have caught up with the highlights or vaguely know what's happened. But some of the detail in the midst of all the um, attacking, especially on the final climb of the day, but even before that, um, that I kind of will take away from today's commentary was uh, I quite enjoyed the attitude of Green Project Bardiani and in particular my favourite and Matt's favourite, our favourite Green Project Bardiani rider Davide Gaboro who for reasons unknown to himself really and the, the whole team approached it in a similar way decided to try and fight Ben Healy tooth and nail for King of the Mountains points even though they were all starting on zero and Healy already had a hundred and whatever points in the bank. Um, so that was that was kind of like curious. Oh, they've got every right to. Why not? Why not fight for all the points available? But it must have irritated the hell out of Ben Healy. And he finished in the end a long way down on the stage and he looked white as a sheet because of the amount of energy that he'd had to expend in getting these King of the Mountains points because of flipping Davide Gaburo. <laughs> Who I like a lot. I think he's great. Um, So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Um, Notable contributions, I think, came from today. Uh, I think uh, Filippo Zana from Jaco Alula, who was in that original breakaway of 28 riders that were dissolved and was caught in the the slopes of the, the final climb of the day. Um, but he suddenly found himself with a huge amount to do because uh, Eddie Dunbar was climbing so well and he's a teammate. And so when when he was scooped up by the GC race, he got on the front of that uh, group of favourites and he drilled it for a couple of kilometres and he took Dunbar clear um, and the rest of them, incidentally, who also benefited from his work, clear of that second group on the road with um, Caduzo and Kemner and Buitrago and all that lot, which meant that Ultimately, it was one of the contributing factors that means Eddie Dunbar has catapulted himself up the uh, up the GC standings and into contention. Other things that I noticed, focusing on, I suppose, that in some ways, that one of the key moments of the day was when Rowan Dennis, who did this enormous turn, we expect he took over with about, I want to say 17, 18 kilometers of the climb still to go. And we were talking in commentary about because they'd already lost... Um, Koen Bauman, who dropped away, and would have been expected, I think, to do a, a similar sort of turn on the front. But we were expecting Rowan Dennis to sit on the front, maybe for as much as seven or eight kilometers of the climb. But he set a furious pace that kind of splintered that group and ultimately put Amirai onto trouble, into trouble. But it didn't last long uh, because it couldn't last long because he was going that hard. And when he peeled off to the left, when he was done, Rowan Dennis, um, that was it. Ineos Grenadiers were on his wheel. And then on their wheel were the UAE Team Emirates uh, climbers and Jao Almeida. And the whole impetus went out of that briefly, just went out of that group completely. As the Ineos Grenadiers sort of peeled over, said, well, we're not going to ride now, and looked at UAE Team Emirates, who barely hesitated for more than a second or two before Jao Almeida obviously gave them the instruction, right, we ride, we ride, which I thought was a really revealing sign of the, the, the confidence he had in his team and the confidence he had in his own form at that point. Um and that really, from that moment on when David Formula got on the front, for me kind of spelt the the beginning of um how it how it played out towards the end, uh, with Gyel Mada sitting on the front once that group had been whittled down, himself and taking the responsibility of setting the pace, which you kind of thought, Whoa, this is you sure that's the right thing to do and then backing it up with that uh, attack, what was it, six or seven kilometers out, which then defined the way that, that ultimately it all played out, um, put Roglic into trouble um, when he failed any longer to be able to hold the wheel of Sepp Kuss. And that was the intuitive moment where Geraint Thomas, without looking at Roglic, who'd picked his wheel at that point, he didn't look back to see whether Roglic was suffering or not. He just noticed that that the gap to Kuss had grown and he implied or he inferred from that, sorry, inferred, not implied, he inferred from that that Roglic couldn't close the gap to his own domestique at that point. And without looking around, he knew, I think, that Roglic was in trouble and that's when he attacked and got across to Almeida and they rode on. So once again, Sepp Kuss did this perfect role for Primoz Roglic, who could, after all, ultimately just have had a bad day. Let's, let's just say that. And I think there's plenty more to come from him because, blimey, He's only 25 seconds down on GC, and he's Primoz Roglic. But it could have been a lot worse without Sepp Kuss. When the road flattened out in the last 2 or 3K, the slipstreaming effect that Roglic got from Kuss there as he pushed on was enough to limit the losses, which had gone out to 40, 45 seconds, brought it back to around about 30 seconds, and then Roglic had enough in his legs to take a, a second or two back in the final kilometre and make it a reasonable loss that he sustained He finished in third place, let's not forget. So I don't think he's out of it. Far from it. Jumbo Visma still have uh, strength in their team, in theory, certainly in numbers. Um, Sepkus looks very much up to his task of what is normally expected of him and what he normally delivers. Um, Pavel Sivakov was off the race today, so Ineos Grenadiers are three riders down, uh, which is not without significance, is it? And Joao Almeida is the best Joao Almeida we've ever seen. Um, there's, that's clear. You know, Four second places on stages of the Giro uh, historically to date, and now he's a winner, taking it to Roglic and uh, trying to take it to Geraint Thomas at the line. But um, those two could be a useful alliance. I, I don't know whether the first mountain stage might see them just combining forces to actually eliminate Roglic from contention for the overall, and then they can do battle between themselves good though isn't it the Giro it's good it would be easier with someone else to talk to rather than just going insane in my hotel room all on my own um, but hey can't win them all you can't win them all hopefully normal service will be resumed uh, tomorrow